All right. Thank you all so much for being here this morning. Church is always interesting because sometimes the weather's too bad and people say it's raining, I can't come to church. And sometimes the weather's too good and people say it's too good, I need to get outside, I can't come to church. So I'm glad y'all are here this morning. We're in a series called How to Pray. And we're looking at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 5 to 15. We're looking at what Jesus taught his disciples about what to do when you pray. Pastor Al spent a week talking about how not to pray, kind of giving some context and uh, don't be like these people who think that they're heard for these different reasons, but instead pray to your father in secret who knows what you need before you even ask him. And then Pastor Al spent a week talking about our father who's in heaven and how we address God as father, that he loves us. Last week we looked at this prayer of adoration and praise. Uh, We said, hallowed be your name. And it was a wonderful sermon. The notes are online on our blog, and the sermon is up on our website. And so this week we come to the next line in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. And it says this, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I, as I was praying this week over this sermon, and I've just been praying about this whole series, I just thought, which one of us does not struggle with praying, right? I mean, maybe the seasons of life when God is just speaking to your heart and, and it's a season where you feel like there's just this unbroken conversation with you and God and you feel like maybe it comes naturally for a while. But I think if you've ever had that, you know maybe that's just a short season and you go right back into the struggle of, what do I say? I feel like I'm saying the same things all the time or I feel like I'm not saying enough or I feel like I'm only asking things from God. Uh, I feel like I should be just enjoying who he is and not just saying, hey, give me, give me, give me stuff. But which one of us doesn't struggle with problem? I, mean, I think we all struggle with how to pray. That's part of why we named the series so simply, How to Pray. We don't need some pithy title when, let's just get down to brass tacks. We need help, right? We need some instruction and some help on how to pray. And that's why Jesus, when he sets out the Lord's Prayer, what Al has been trying to drive home is that this is not just a pattern of words to repeat, that we just, with repetition, say these same things over and over and over, but it's more of a pattern of words that we pray uh, riffing off of the Lord's Prayer. I've heard theologians say and pastors say throughout all of church history the last 2,000 years, pastors all over the world have used the Lord's Prayer to teach their people how to pray. And they say, take a line and take the meaning of that line and then jump off of it and pray in line with what that is. Our Father in heaven and then pray along that theme. That's why the Lord's Prayer has been so helpful for me in my life because when I feel like I don't know what to pray, I can come right here to the Lord's Prayer and know I've got a pattern that's gonna touch on a lot of different topics if I can just say these six or seven lines. And if I can say these six or seven lines and know what they mean and then be able to pray along that pattern. So that's our prayer for you is that this wouldn't just be a sermon series where we're learning about the Lord's Prayer or we're learning about how Jesus prayed, but our prayer is that this sermon series would give you real tools and a real handle on how can I pray every single day. We hope in our preaching to equip you to live differently, not just to acquire knowledge. So I hope we're doing that. I hope this sermon series is gonna help you know how to pray better. And so this morning, as we come to this prayer, I'll just say right off the bat that this is kind of an odd one. What does that mean? Let your kingdom come. 
and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, one thing Al said last week about hallowed be your name. Hallowed is set apart, honored as holy, sanctified, glorified. We're not praying for God to do something that's not already been done. Right? So we're not praying that, hey, God, I know your name's lacking a little. I pray that you'd boost that thing up. And and this line is kind of the same. We're not praying, hey, your kingdom is, is weak and small right now. I pray that it would expand. That's not what we're praying. We're praying for the reality of God's kingdom to come in our life and come in our world just as it is in heaven. And so I want to break this sermon up into two really distinct parts. And if you've got a handout, I hope you did. I'm doing my best impression of Pastor Al this morning, having a handout. If you ever come, I've never had a handout before, so you are my first group ever to have a handout. But the two sections are, first, the story of the kingdom. The first section is the story of the kingdom. And then we're going to get into, so what does it mean to pray for the kingdom? But first, the story of the kingdom. Because I feel like we, we've got to spend some time talking about what in the world is the kingdom of God. If we're praying, let your kingdom come, what is the kingdom that we're asking God to send? What is the kingdom we're longing for so much that we want to pray for it to happen in our lives? And so I feel like there's no better way to communicate what the kingdom is than by looking at the story of the kingdom. And that first blank on your handout says, God's, and here's the blank, reign. God's reign. Because the story of the kingdom starts in Genesis 1 and 2 where we see God reigning over everything. And you say, wait, I don't see it Call God king. It doesn't talk about a throne. It doesn't talk about a kingdom. What do you mean God's reigning in Genesis 1 and 2? Look at the very opening words of our Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, when there was nothing else, when there was no world, when there was no time, when there was no other people, there was God before all things. And then in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating and designing and ordering the world we all live in right now. And then we see, so God's over all creation, all the physical creation, and then we see God make man and woman, and he puts them underneath his authority. So in Genesis 1 and 2, of all the things we could walk away with, one thing we do walk away with is that God is over everything. Because he made it all. He spoke it into being and it's all according to his will. It's all his design, his idea, start to finish. He thought it up, he spoke it into existence and it happened exactly as he wanted to. And then when he looked back on it every day, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then at the end, he looks back over all of his creation and says, it is very good. We start off the whole Bible, the story of the kingdom. We see God's reign. And I want to just point out one verse in Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Paul says this, for from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We cannot talk about the kingdom of God without talking about the fact that God sovereignly reigns over everything. That's the starting point of the Bible. That's the starting point of talking about the kingdom of God, that God's reign But then we don't have to get very far along in the story of the kingdom to see our rebellion. Our rebellion. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve throw off God's authority. Right? We see the serpent, Satan, 
come in the form of a servant to Adam and Eve and say, did God really say this? Do you really think you're going to die? Do you really? And all of a sudden, they begin to doubt. And they begin to throw off God's authority. And they begin to say, you know what? I don't know if God really has our best intentions in mind. I don't know if God really knows best for us. I don't know if the way God ordered everything really is the way it ought to be. I think we've got a better plan. I think, I think we can be our own authority for a little while. And I think we might have a better chance at this than if we were under the authority of God. And so in Genesis 3, we see our rebellion. And it marks the whole rest of the Bible. We see sin as a picture of throwing off God's authority and seeking independence of God. But the problem is that in creation, God designed us to be underneath his authority. So if we're talking about the story of the kingdom... We're not just given a, a flat definition yet. We're just talking about what's the story of this thing. It's that like God reigns all things and we were created to be under his reign, but then we've sinned by coming outside of his authority and saying, we don't need you. We can be independent. We can be autonomous. We can be on our own. We don't need your authority, God. We don't need your reign over us. But part of the problem with that is that God created us to live underneath authority. So when we cast off God's authority, we go looking for it somewhere else. So we cast off God's authority and say, we don't need your rules in our life, but guess what? You're either crawling in front of the throne of God or you're crawling onto the throne. I mean, there, there's no other place for you to go. Either you're crawling in front of the throne of God and you're saying, God, you reign over everything, or you're gonna try to crawl onto that throne yourself and you're gonna say, I know everything. I know what's best for me. I know how to order my life. I know how to design this world. But you will always function with some authority in your life. It may be yourself. It may be under the authority of someone else in your life that you're just constantly seeking for someone to tell you what to do next. You go to destructive relationship to destructive relationship. It, it could be under the authority of material possessions. That your life is owned by gaining more and more and more stuff but you will always look for some will to follow, some authority to be under. That's part of our rebellion. We cast off God's authority and we go looking for it somewhere else. So the story of the kingdom is God's reign and our rebellion. Then we've got to ask, how does God respond to our rebellion? How does God respond to our sin? What does he do? When he, remember, he reigns over everything, created it all. And then the pinnacle, the, the, the prime point of his creation, people rebelled, rebelled against his good rule. So what does God do? Smash it and start over? Banish them immediately? Say, no hope, you lost your chance. Well, God responds by promising redemption. So the third point is God's redemption in Christ. This is the story of the kingdom. As soon as Adam and Eve rebel and sin, in Genesis 3.15, we see God make a promise. And it's vague at the beginning, but it gets more clear as scripture goes on. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you talking to the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's saying some offspring is going to come from the woman and he's talking to the serpent he says some the woman is going to have an offspring sometime in the future and he's going to crush your head you're going to bruise his heel in the process 
But that's going to be nothing compared to how he crushes your head. God sees the serpent and, and Satan and sin as the origin of evil in the world. And he says, one day I'm going to overthrow this rebellion to my kingdom. So when God is faced with our rebellion, he responds by promising redemption. He doesn't squash it and start over, but he promises redemption one day. He says, I know you're rebelling against me now, but one day I will win you back. And then fast forward to the New Testament. We see when Mary is pregnant with Jesus, the Virgin Mary, she's visited by the angel Gabriel and he's explaining what's happening. And when he's describing to Mary her son, he says, that her son would reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then when Jesus comes on the scene as a full grown adult in Matthew 4.17 and Mark 1.15, we see when Jesus starts his ministry, he goes around and proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is God's kingdom has come in me. So when God promises redemption, God is promising to reestablish his reign in Christ. So Christ comes as God's king to bring redemption for us. But we've got to take a step back and realize that Jesus doesn't look like the normal king we would expect. He didn't look look like the normal king that the Jews expected in the first century either. They wanted a worldly kingdom. They, wa- they wanted the palace. They wanted the boundary lines. They wanted the territory. They wanted to know where's the nation, where's the people, where's the army, where's your throne, where's the crown. That's what they wanted. That, isn't that what we think about when we think of a king and a kingdom? But because God promised redemption and because he knew what redemption would cost, he didn't send Jesus to look like that kind of king. He didn't send Jesus to build the biggest following he possibly could, to be as famous as he possibly could, to have as many followers as he possibly could. That's not why he sent Jesus. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come and overthrow Rome. He didn't come and overthrow any of the people in authority over him that were beating him at the end of his life. Jesus didn't come to overthrow that kind of thing. Jesus came to overthrow his true enemies, which were sin, death, and Satan. So Philippians 2, 5 to 11 shows us a picture of our King Jesus that's completely upside down from what we would imagine a king would normally be. Because Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Most people think that that part of Philippians was an early hymn that the church would sing when they gathered. Do you see why? Because they believed that Jesus was a king. But what king have you ever heard described as he emptied himself? He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. What king have you ever heard described like that? 
See, we serve an altogether different kind of king. God's kingdom is an altogether different kind of kingdom. This is the paradox of God's kingdom. It's the paradox between the cross and the crown. Kings wear crowns, but our king bore a cross. Why? Because he came to overthrow his enemies. And he knew his enemies weren't just people who claimed to be king over a little kingdom in Rome or in Israel or in a little part of the map of the world. He knew his enemies were so much bigger than that, so much more invisible than that. He didn't just come to say, let me set up a kingdom and build a palace and wear a crown. He said, I'm gonna make my way to the cross to defeat my true enemies, sin, death, and Satan. And he surely defeated all three of them in his death and resurrection. Read with me Isaiah 53 verse five to see how he defeated sin. It says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Romans 6, 9 shows us how Jesus defeated death. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him. Hebrews 2, 14 shows us how Jesus has defeated Satan. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The path to Jesus' reign, the path to establish Jesus' kingdom went straight through the cross. So when we're looking at what is God's kingdom, this is the last blank underneath the story of the kingdom. We have God's reign. We see the story in God's reign, our rebellion, God's redemption in Christ where he's reestablishing his kingdom. So God's kingdom is God's redemptive reign in Christ. God's kingdom is God's redemptive reign in Christ. It's not an absolute reign where he says, I will establish my, I mean, this is what I do with my kids. You will obey me. And it works every time. I don't know about your kids. It works mine every time. Every time. Ask anyone at Kroger yesterday when I was there. They will tell you how wonderfully they obeyed. That's not how God, he doesn't take this absolute reign and says, you will obey me or else. He doesn't establish his kingdom by brute force, but his reign is redemptive. So he doesn't establish his kingdom in our hearts by brute force. He woos us to him by love and grace and mercy. Knowing that if we can just get free from the sin that's causing us to love anything but him and we see him for who he really is. Our kids are in the phase where they, they, want, to, they want to say the opposite of what you want them to say. So Jonathan will say, I'm not gonna love you. <laughs> and you're like, you have no idea what that even means. But he said the other day, he said, uh, he said, I'm not gonna love God. I said, you're right, buddy. You're not going to until you see that he loves you. And I turned to Carrie and I said, I'm glad I came. That was pretty good. <laughs> but that's the truth. He's, he's not. He, he's a sinner. He doesn't understand God's great love for him in Christ. But if we can see and get a picture of God's kingdom, that he reigns over everything and he has the power and sovereignty over all things, yet the way he brought about his kingdom was 
humiliating suffering and death. And the way he wants to bring us into the kingdom is not brute force, but by love and grace. It's the most compelling invitation of all. So the first part, we wanted to look at the story of the kingdom. But now we want to pray for the kingdom. So we got to recognize that we are not just learning about the kingdom of God. We are longing for the kingdom of God. If you didn't catch those blanks, they're right underneath praying for the kingdom. We're not just learning about the kingdom of God, acquiring information. We are longing for the kingdom of God. You say, Johnny, why? Where does that come from? Well, because Jesus is telling us to pray, let your kingdom come. We see the kingdom and then we want it. We want that kind of reign in our life. We want the redemptive reign of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. We, want it. we don't want to just learn about it. We want to long for it. Oh, Jesus, let your kingdom come to my life. So how do we pray for it? So I, I put a little tiny picture there, but we want to pray in concentric circles. We talk about concentric circles often when we uh, pray for people as a staff and when we think about how to develop people. I and mean, we use concentric circles a lot. And I think it makes so much sense for thinking about praying. Thinking about praying. So the first concentric circle I want us to consider this morning is we want to pray for the kingdom to come for myself. I mean, it starts in our heart, doesn't it? It starts in our own heart. God, let your kingdom come personally to me in my heart. So has Christ redeemed your heart and brought his reign there? I mean, have you been saved? Have you been converted? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ? That's the first act of him bringing his kingdom into your heart. And if you've done that, then this question still remains for you. Are you personally submitting every day to God's redemptive reign? Are you submitting to his reign? Because the second part of this prayer, and we're treating them together, is your will be done. These are two sides of the same coin. God's kingdom coming and him ruling and reigning over all things, and then his will is done. Are you submitting every day and saying, God, your will be done, not mine? Jesus says it like this in the Gospels. You gotta take up your cross daily, die to yourself and follow me. Is that your daily prayer? That you wanna die to yourself and follow Jesus? That you recognize it's not your kingdom you're building. It's not your kingdom, it's God's kingdom. Do you every day realize that you're either crawling on the throne of your heart or you're crawling in front of the throne of your heart? There's only two options, there's not a third. So if you don't crawl in front of the throne and worship God, then you're going to crawl on the throne and you're going to think you're the king or queen of your own kingdom. So that first circle is myself. Are you living as a kingdom citizen? Are you praying for the kingdom to come in your own life? The second one is family. Is family. And I'm including marriage for those of us who are married. And I'm including all other kinds of family, kids, family you live with, grown adult kids, grandparents, I mean, you could put all sorts of, define your own family situation in this line, but I'm just gonna say family. Are you praying for God's kingdom to come in your family? Is your marriage submitted to the redemptive reign of God in Christ? I don't mean each one of you individually because the Bible describes marriage as when two individuals come together and become one flesh. 
So I hope individually, and we cover that in the first concentric circle, that you yourself are pursuing Jesus and his kingdom is coming into your life personally. But the next ring out is your family. And the first part of family is your marriage. Is your marriage submitted to Christ? Are you together trying to pursue Jesus together? Pray. To, there's a marked difference in our life when we pray together for what's going on in our house, in our lives. Then if we, we could say the same prayers all day individually, but God does something special when we pray together. And we fail more often than we succeed at that, but, but when we succeed and we pray together, I mean, I'm just telling you, God's grace is just tangible. So is your marriage submitted to his kingdom? What would it look like if you said, let your kingdom come and your will be done in my marriage as it is in heaven? In what ways would you forgive your spouse differently? Would you serve your spouse differently? Would you honor your spouse differently? In what way would you pray for your spouse differently? What would it look like if you said, God, let your kingdom come in my kids' lives, in my household, in my finances, as it is in heaven? How would you treat your kids differently? How would you love them? How would you, how would you force them to come to church? You force them to go to school, right? Like they ought to be here. They don't know what's best for themselves. And I think we all were raised kind of understanding that. Like our parents made us do stuff. They're a kid. There's so much they don't know. We make them eat certain things and go to school and go to the doctor and go to the dentist. We ought to make them come here and pray that the repeated hearing of God's word is going to bear fruit in their heart. But you're not coming here thinking you can change their heart or that I can change their heart or Al or Matthew can change their heart. You're coming here because you're praying, God, let your kingdom come in my kids' lives as it is in heaven. So, so the second one is family. The third one is church. The third one is church. And I wanna read this quote from a guy named Russell Moore wrote a book called Onward. And here's what he says. The church is a signpost of God's coming kingdom a preview to the watching world of what the reign of God in Christ is to look like, a colony of the kingdom coming. In the church, God has created an embassy of the kingdom of Christ, appealing to the outside world to be reconciled to the coming kingdom and modeling what this kingdom will look like. Do you pray for the kingdom to come in our church as it is in heaven? Do you pray for that and do you participate in the church? as if you're hoping that God's kingdom is coming here as it is in heaven. That's my prayer for the church, is that God's kingdom would come in our midst, that we would be a present reality of a future hope. We know the world's broken, but what would happen if when you walked through those doors and we gathered here as the church, that for just a moment, it felt like things weren't broken? Not because we're being delusional, but because for just a few minutes, we so look to Jesus that we're swept up in remembering that he's gonna redeem everything. And we know when we walk out, our problems are gonna hit us right in the face. We're not trying to ignore it. But what if this church was a refuge? What if we were a family that was so focused on God that it brought rest to the weary and it brought healing to the sick? It brought encouragement to all of us at a depth that we can't find outside the church. God, let your kingdom come to our church as is in heaven. The fourth line of concentric circles is neighbors. 
Neighbors, God has put you where you live, work, and play on purpose. And if you know Jesus, you're actually called to the ministry because 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21 talks about how God has made you a new creation in Christ Jesus, and he's given you the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is bringing together two things that were not together, particularly people. And in this context, people and Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to the ministry. Congratulations. You're a part of the ministry team at Shalford because God has put you where you live, work, and play so that you could tell other people about Jesus. Are you praying for your neighborhood, your workplace, your, where your kids go to school, your grocery store, where you frequent? Are you praying, God, let your kingdom come in these places as it is in heaven. Let your will be done in these places as it is in heaven. You're praying for your neighbors in that way. The, the fifth line is Nations. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we see God's incredible passion to make himself known among all peoples on earth. And if you need help praying with, God, I want your kingdom to come to the nations as it is in heaven, I I want you to pray and mark and write down Psalm 67. There's a prayer in the Psalms where he says, may the peoples pray. I mean, he's just saying, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This is line after line in Psalm 67 of him saying, I want the nations to know you. I pray for the nations. And then sixth is the future. Sixth is the future. As we're praying for everything, that God's kingdom would come, and myself, my family, my church, my neighbors, the nations, we're eventually swept up and realize that's the whole world. And then we realize that Everything in the world is broken. And we realize that the kingdom, while Jesus brought it now, and it's already here in our hearts, and we're this kind of present reality of a future hope, it's still a future hope. So we're praying like at the end of Revelation when he says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We still want Jesus to come and make everything new again. Because there's still incredibly deep marks of sin in our world and suffering, and evil, and sickness, and brokenness within us and outside of us, bearing down on us. And when you see the brokenness in our world, I hope it leads you to pray for the future coming and establishing of God's kingdom. Go read the first five verses of Revelation 21. God says he's going to wipe away every tear. And it says that the one who says this, the one who is seated on the throne has said, I will make all things new. It's his reign, but it's redemption. He's ruling over all things. And while right now it seems broken, one day he's gonna make everything new. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your kingdom. We're grateful that you reign over all things and not us. And we're grateful that we know who reigns over all things, that we don't have to guess who the higher power is, but we know that it's you, and we know that your purposes are good, specifically your purposes towards us are good because of Christ Jesus. So we ask this morning that your kingdom would come. Would your kingdom come in our hearts, God? Make us new so we long for you, and we want you to reign over us. We want to die to ourselves, and we want to follow you. And God, we pray for our families here. We pray for marriages to be healed, to be healthy and growing and maturing with you at the middle. God, we pray. I'm just amazed at how many kids we have.
And God, I hear of other churches having 180 adults and 30 kids, and I think we have 50 adults and 30 kids. What in the world are we gonna do? But God, it's a, it's a unique burden to pray for these families in the confusing season of life, what it means to raise kids, and how do we let them make their own decisions, and how do we lead them, and how do we provide for them, but teach them to take responsibility. And then we lay down at the end of the day, and we think, God, how in the world are we gonna communicate the gospel to them? And I think it all starts with praying, God, let your kingdom come in my family and in my kids' lives. And I pray that Shafford would be a safe place for people to bring their kids to learn about you. And I pray let your kingdom come to Shalford as it is in heaven, God. We want to submit to your will and your rule and your reign. We pray for our neighbors around this church house and in all of our neighborhoods and the web of influence that we have springing out from this room that your kingdom would come as we share the gospel and we pray for the nations. We want your kingdom to come to places that are incredibly broken, places that are almost completely unreached, never heard of the gospel. We pray your kingdom would come there, that you'd look tend to raise up laborers and servants for your harvest there. And God, long for the future when you establish your kingdom once and for all and completely and finally overthrow anything that's in rebellion to your kingdom, anything that's out of sync with your will. So we love you this morning. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Let's sing together.